arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. If you're not a fighting fan, perhaps you can view this pugilistic battle in a simple way. Watching the film itself, Dempsey pummeled Tunney, but did not, according to the revised rules, go to another corner. Even with that being said, the count by referee Dave Barry was certainly a long count and allowed Tunney to come back and win the fight. In a bizarre way, the long count fight becomes part of the fight against the Avigis and the transmission attempt to the Star Capella. Before we even get to that, events play out around Niagara Falls in a way that few can understand in 1927. Here's the final episode, and it's apropos that the long count is contained within, because this is indeed a long episode. Episode 5 of Once in a Lifetime by Robert P. Fitton starts now. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 23 Choking in the gurgling water, he fought the river's fury. The Niagara easily overpowered him and pulled him under. He aspirated the water that was forced into his nose and mouth. The impending drop over the cascading water parapet would take his drowned body to the river below. A deafening noise excoriated his eardrums as he tumbled out of control against the rocks and bounced toward the spit. His legs punctured the space between the twisted roots and branches. As he clutched the exposed limbs, his body whipped toward the falls like a flag in a strong gust, but with his legs locked within the tree roots, he hoisted himself upward. The river's grip lessened and his legs loosened as he pulled himself over the branches and onto the soggy grass. Coughing, he crawled and collapsed on his stomach. Beat by beat, his heart slammed against the ground and the sense of movement caused him to imagine the river swallowing up the whole spit. For the longest time, he dried in the warm air, but he heard voices, and when he lifted his head, he saw people running toward him. The spit connected to the outer edge of a small park, to an arched walkway, and another island. A longer stretch of land extended up to the American Falls. He rolled over, sat up, and gagged as onlookers surrounded him. "'Are you all right, young man? Are you all right?' asked a guy in a black-and-white checkered golf hat. Charlie cleared his throat as he sat up. "'Yeah, I'm all right.' A man with short black hair, about his age, extended his hand and helped Charlie to his feet. Charlie, clothes wet and minus his shoes, turned back toward the plant several miles away atop the hill. Dark smoke billowed above the forest treetops along the riverbank. 
He saw no more flashes or avigis in their awkward human form, nor did he see Jamel. They escorted him around the neatly cut grass. Back in lower Manhattan, he had once walked off a drunken binge, not half as bad as this. A large crowd gathered ahead as he coughed and staggered toward the American Falls. He quickly accepted a ride when a short man with a thin mustache offered to drive him to a hospital. The man spread a blanket across the front seat of his Chevy, and Charlie, still clearing his throat, looked for Jamel past the Horseshoe Falls and up the river. He fell back in the seat, his muscles aching and his lungs still chunky. The man started the car, and the crowd moved aside as the Chevy rolled forward in first gear. Charlie panned to his left and fixated on the spit, only yards from the raging falls. Mother McCree. I don't think anyone has ever survived a fall into the river. You are heading right toward the falls. Look, Mr. Tompkins. Mr. Tompkins, I need you to bring this jalopy to the Cleveland Hotel. Don't you think you should see a doctor? No, I'm all right. I'm all right, bud. Then we have to call the newspapers. This is extraordinary. No. What? No press. But, he turned toward Tompkins. Please, Mr. Tompkins. Very well. Tompkins drove through the park entrance. The warm air hit Charlie's lacerated face as he stared out the open window. City buildings and overhead electric car lines appeared beyond the falls. The canisters were at the Cleveland Hotel, and Jamel, thinking he had died over the falls, would, if she escaped the Avigis, head for the hotel. Charlie balanced his scraped elbow out the window as Tompkins shifted back into the city. More than surviving the falls, he worried about Jamel and the pursuing Avigis. After seeing him in the river, they might also have assumed that he had died and then targeted her. With a simple handgun, Jamel had no defense against the destructive Etor beams. The heavy traffic slowed their progress. Charlie tapped his fingers on the blanket at the red traffic lights. At each street corner and down the side streets, he leaned out the window and searched for anything suspicious. Half an hour after he had stepped into Tompkins's car, the Cleveland's symmetrically aligned windows and smooth beige facade materialized over the long, inclined boulevard. Tompkins shifted again as people walked inconspicuously down the sidewalks and other cars passed as they did on any typical day. How could he call this a typical day? Beings from the future had tried to kill him and Jamel. As Tompkins proceeded along the asphalt, Charlie leaned against the dash and peered toward the hotel's cranberry awning. Beyond the waiting cabs, along the sidewalk ahead, the same blue Ford from the power plant parking lot slowed in front of the hotel. Oh, damn. What's the matter? asked Tompkins. Take a left. Quick. I need to get behind the hotel. Whatever you say, mister. He shifted and the storefronts blurred into the smaller buildings. Charlie's heart thumped and his raw fear thwarted the pain from the abrasions spread over his legs, arms, and face. Every bone in his body throbbed. He hacked again as they turned up a narrow roadway leading behind the hotel. Are you sure you don't want to see a doctor? asked Tompkins as the brakes squeaked near the rear parking lot's loading dock. Charlie focused on the corrugated green loading dock doors. He shook Tompkins' hand tightly and then placed a soggy $100 bill 
in his palm. Thanks, bud. Oh, I don't need this, really. Take it, said Charlie as he pushed open the door. Once outside, Tompkins peered upward. You're one lucky mug. Charlie saluted as he backed away. The hot asphalt burned his stockings as he ran into the hotel shadows. He ascended the concrete loading dock stairs and opened a battered metal door. White uniformed workers in the stainless steel kitchen to his right prepared meals for the hotel, and huge, freestanding metal fans blew hints of the evening fare into the narrow passageway. He pivoted into the pipeline corridors and climbed a cast-iron staircase to the first floor. A series of wide wood frame windows dotted the pale green hallway. He pushed against a heavy varnished door and emerged behind the lobby in the main desk. He shielded himself behind a fluffy green palm and a series of mirrors. His scattered blonde hair and soaked shirt and dark trousers prompted him to roll his eyes. Then he checked the lobby. Standing like a military man next to the revolving door, a large man in a starched white shirt stared at the street. Both men moved like the wind-up marching toys he had given his niece Emma at Christmas. Another man, identically dressed but with a bright yellow striped tie, maintained a station at the outside window. He too turned in short, jerky movements. From behind the plant leaves, Charlie darted down the hallway's bright, broadloom rug. Quickly he pulled open a side door and heard the sound of adding machines as he stepped into an inner office. He glided by the desk and squeezed through an opening next to the water cooler. But he remained near the outer wall, convinced the Aegis were at the revolving door. A young clerk in a maroon velvet uniform turned. What are you doing, sir? I need my suitcases. They're stored in back. Who are you, sir? He looked down at Charlie's wet stockings and up his wrinkled pants and twisted shirt. I registered under the name Rumford. I see. The clerk walked along the desk and talked to an older man who glanced at Charlie. Out front, another wide-shouldered guy in a white silk shirt moved mechanically through the revolving brass frame door and said something to the man positioned inside. He motioned down the street and called the man next to the window across the lobby. Charlie ducked around the corner once again. Sir, said the older clerk, his hands folded, I will need some identification. You look as though you've had a problem. I have room 830. I'm not giving you a line. Where's the other guy that was here? I just started my shift. You must have a room key. The green truck's brake squealed by the front window and stopped at the grocery store across the street. I don't have my key. I will have to ask you to step in the lobby, sir. I can't. The Avigis, who had entered through the revolving door, drifted away from the man stationed near the window and went outside again. With a stiff gait, the Avigis walked off the sidewalk to the truck. Charlie counted two men in the truck. Sir, I will have to call our house detectives. Just let me back in, will you, bud? Two suitcases, and they're both mine. Outside, the Avigis next to the truck lifted binoculars toward the hotel. As the older man at the desk neared the phone, the Avigis crossed the street and entered again through the revolving door. As this being strutted toward the front desk, Charlie's stomach jolted. A slurring voice cracked out across the lobby as if it were being projected through a megaphone. Rumford, 
I need the key. Rumford? asked the clerk. Rumford is already here. With his hands against the wall, Charlie backtracked to the rear offices. At the hall, he peeked around the corner. The Avigis at the window returned to his companion at the front desk. Charlie's heart pounded. If he had his gun, he would have bumped them all off. But the guns were in the suitcases. He slid along the sidewall to the front. The clerk now ordered the three Avigis away from the desk. As the older man set down the phone, one of the Avigis physically tore apart the long, glossy counter and hurled a huge, wood-splintered chunk back into the lobby. Then he plucked the young clerk from behind the debris, pressed his body in the air, and flung him across the lobby tiles. The older man cried out as one of the Avigis crushed his skull into the back wall, and the three beings advanced in unison into the back offices. Charlie ran down the hall and headed for the storage room door behind the front desk. He pulled on the locked brass knob. Damn! He pivoted on the rug and kicked the wooden door open. The two leather suitcases were on a bottom shelf. The blonde-haired Avigis appeared at the door. Charlie unzipped the suitcase and reached inside for the gun. Being's taciturn human eyes darkened as he produced a shiny fan-shaped Etor weapon. But Charlie found the handgun first, thrust it out and pumped the trigger. The implosion threw Charlie against the debris. He struggled to his feet, grabbed the suitcases and ran through the jagged hole in the wall. People scattered as he popped into the side corridor near the elevators and exited onto the Cleveland Avenue sidewalk. Still in his stockings and carrying the suitcases, he ran toward the empty green truck. The keys dangled in the ignition. He set down the suitcases and opened the door. Carefully, he slid the cases across the seat, vaulted into the truck and cranked the engine. He moved the stick shift on the floor and the tires spun across the asphalt as he pulled away. Jamel had pegged them. They were chumps. In the mirror, people back at the hotel ran into the street, but no one pursued him. The rest of the Avigis would soon understand the missing truck. He turned at the next light, shifted, and drove away. Across town, he changed into fresh clothes, socks, and a pair of shoes. He pulled out a second handgun from the suitcase and tucked it under his belt, condensing the remaining essentials into a single suitcase containing the insulated neon canisters. As if he were praying, he folded his hands tightly and contemplated his next move. By now, the cops were swarming all around the hotel. But his thoughts drifted back to Jamel. Was she still alive? Inside the truck, several maps and a dictionary had fallen to the floor. A large painted radio advertisement spanned the adjacent building's bricks. The radio reminded him of how he and Jamel had danced atop the tower to Elf scanning the West Coast radio stations. Jamel might find him if he could coax a radio station into broadcasting a message. He started the truck and pulled onto the road again, aware any direct message might also alert the Avigis. Despite their stupid moves, like Elf, they must have possessed the ability to scan frequency. Meeting in a theater might work. As he moved through the city, he found a restaurant and parked the truck down a side alley. From a telephone booth, he implemented his plan and placed calls within the city. When he had depleted his pocket change, he cashed in more money at the register and called out-of-town stations. At 4.30 in the afternoon, 
a sharp voice production manager at a Pittsburgh radio station, agreed to broadcast a message. Charlie cleared his voice. Alf, Mr. Laurel and Mr. Hardy are waiting now with Charlie on the silver screen. Charlie picked up the suitcase and checked the hall outside the phone booth. Taking nothing for granted now, he exited through the kitchen. The tension spread through his body, sweat draining off his forehead as he trudged back to the truck. With a little luck, and if Jamel had outrun the Avigis, they would meet back in the theater. He approached the theater slowly, but turned and looked down Cleveland Avenue toward the hotel. Police cars and fire trucks held up the traffic a few blocks ahead. He checked the sidewalks for Jamel and then turned into a dirt lot adjacent to a huge gray stone church. Taking the suitcase outside, he looked down the marquee above the theater lobby and then back up Cleveland Ave again. The canisters bulged through the suitcase. The future of both the human and Sageon races depended on the neon inside that suitcase. For several minutes, he checked the street but he finally opted to walk down the inclined sidewalk to the movie theater. He purchased a ticket, and the usher ripped it in half as he lugged the suitcase into the Laurel and Hardy movie. The darkened theater's wide screen cast a moonlight glow across the aisles and rows of seats. They had positioned a little piano, diagonal to the curtains. Charlie stared with a blank face at the same black-and-white movie scenes that he had laughed so heartily at last night. As he slid to the same seats where he and Jamel had sat, he now contemplated contacting Gifford. If the Avigis had killed Jamel, he would need someone who could understand the transmitter. Maybe they would get a hold of the scientist, Tesla. He leaned back, tightened his arms across his chest, and shook his head to the meaningless question. He did not have the archives in his possession. Blanketed in the silvery light, Charlie looked at his luminous watch dial. Fifteen minutes had passed, and he had doubts whether Alf had heard his broadcast. By getting in contact with Langley and flying out, he could ditch the Avigis and bring the archives back to the city. He felt a tug on his ear as he spun around. Jamel's freckled, thin face appeared in the silver light. You are the luckiest man on this planet, Charles Rousseau. We heard the message. Never mind, I'm just glad you did hear my message. I heard the message, Charlie. Patrons upset with the chatter requested that they be quiet. He slowly rolled over the seat and squeezed over her lean body. A magenta glow inside Elf's case surrounded the long, flat silver archives tray. Well, hotsy-totsy, you have the archives. At the expense of my friends' lives, but they would have gladly have sacrificed their lives to transmit this information. Then she looked him in the eye, in almost a moonlight glow. She had a sultry presence. He kissed her and held her tight. I'm in love with you, Charlie. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to, but I am. How, how could you have survived going over the Horseshoe Falls? I'm just a hard-boiled kind of guy, but I didn't go over. Somehow I hit that island, the spit. The canisters? What about the canisters? What do you think I am, some cake eater? What does that mean? Not important. I have them he said, pointing to the suitcase on the floor ahead. I got them from the hotel. No leakage from the sustained insulation. One thing, they were outside the hotel, and once they stormed the front desk, I think they killed the clerk. I plugged one of them, and he blew up. Listen, I have their truck outside. 
I outran them in their own truck. But they'll be out at that airfield if they figure this out. Maybe yes, maybe no, she said. I say we have to get to Langley. I'm not worried. He'll get us back to the city. Charlie reached over the seats, grunted, and dragged the suitcase back to the next row. He placed it on the floor. Come on, let's get out of here. When he stepped into the aisle, some chubby guy in the back row pointed at him. Your problem is you can't keep your mouth shut, twerp. Charlie, trudging down the aisle, waited until he reached the last row. Come on, Jamel. Mr. Hardy up there missed his afternoon snack. Why, you little window washer, shouted the man as he stood. Charlie gestured as if he were cleaning a window in a circular motion and then waved with his fingers at the oversized Hardy in the film. Au revoir! The guy continued to yell as they left the theater into the lobby. He held her hand and gripped the suitcase as they traipsed by the concession counter. As they exited the theater, he checked the busy street and then nodded. Everything is okay, said Charlie as they started down the street. She pulled him over near the gargantuan stone church where he had left the truck. But somebody had taken the truck. She set Elf on the retaining wall next to the church. He heard an operator's voice from inside Elf's case. And then Jamel spoke. Yes, please get me the Consolidated Aircraft Airport. The operator asked for a nickel and somehow Elf did something with the line. Good afternoon, Consolidated. Yes, I need to speak to Langley. He's in a pretty big card game right now. This is very important. Charlie leaned over and checked both sides of the street as he spoke. Tell him Charlie has 500 waiting if he can get airborne. I told you he was busy. We'll pay you 100 if you get him to the phone. Who did you say you were? You tell him Charlie is ready to fly and he'll make sure you get your 100. Uh, I'll be back. I'll be right back. Charlie grinned. You play ball real fast when you got a wad of bills in front of you, kisser. His smile fell as he caught sight of a car taking the corner several blocks away. He leaped back onto the cement sidewalk as the nose of the blue Ford sedan approached down the street. Jamel opened her mouth as Charlie grabbed Alf and they retreated down the sidewalk. That's the Ford at the plant, and then it was at the hotel. Hey, Charlie, this is Lang, said Langley through Alf's panels. Lang. We need to get out of here, he bellowed, and breathed heavily as he ran. I mean now. Did Billy tell me 500 and 100 for him? Yeah, don't worry about it. He pushed open the theater door and rounded into the entrance. Once back in the lobby, he peered out to the street from behind a partition. Just be ready. We're in Niagara Falls. We'll be right there, Lang. I'm ready when you are, buddy. She cut the transmission as one of the Avigis, in denim overalls, exited the Ford and plodded up the sidewalk. Then the being opened the movie house door. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 24 Charlie guided Jamel onto her stomach and then balanced his elbows on the suitcase. The Avigis, wearing denim overalls, waddled across the carpeted lobby and up to the ticket booth. Charlie whispered in her ear, Now what? We just wait till he leaves. He crawled on top of the suitcase and peered around the partition. Someone sat behind the wheel of the Ford. He gripped the edge of the partition but lost his footing and fell back into the lobby. The Avigis at the ticket booth turned to his left. 
His dull, flat facial expression never changed. As Charlie ducked behind the petition, the bioenergy being pointed a shiny clam-shaped device at them. Charlie swung the Smith & Wesson. A green Etor beam immediately shattered the lobby window and cut up the asphalt outside. He pumped the trigger quickly, and on the fourth shot, a bright light preceded a rumbling expansion of dust and gas. He covered Jamel's body as a portion of the inner balcony collapsed. Debris crashed through the glass counter, and the lobby went dark. The smoke and haze gushed into the street as people darted in confusion and others screamed. Charlie, fearing a police dragnet and confronting more of Eiji's, hauled the suitcase behind Jamel back into the main theater. They dodged the people fighting to get outside and then followed a group of patrons back to an open door near the piano. They stepped onto the exterior wood stairway. The green truck loomed less than a hundred yards away next to a vacant dirt lot. Oh no, Charlie. The blue sedan slowly cruised quietly along Cleveland Ave. One of the Avigis in a white shirt aimed his e-tour weapon out the car window. A thin line of green light shot into the parking lot, spread wider and smashed against the side of the truck. The beam intensified until it surrounded the truck into a dull red glow, and the vehicle just disappeared. A pungent ozone odor drifted upward as the sedan skidded from the theater. Charlie lingered with his mouth open, but Jamel nudged him down the stairs. They paralleled the back of the theater, and then they started up an extended dark alley. A milkman in a white uniform, black bow tie, and company hat stepped off a loading dock ahead. The man stared at the theater as he held an empty metal case beside his pale yellow milk truck. Then he stepped up to meet them. Hey, what happened over there? You'll have to help us, shouted Charlie. In the heat, he removed his hat and wiped his brow. I heard something blow in that theater and out back. Charlie studied the maroon letters across the yellow truck. He thought quickly, anarchist. They just hit the theater. Listen, we can't explain, but they're after us. The milkman squinted at the black smoke billowing into the vermilion sky and then looked at Charlie. Right, that's a good one. Charlie thrust the gun in his face. That's another good one. Can you help us? He set the milk case on the bricks and took out a pack of camels. Shaking the pack, he popped a cigarette. So you jokers are going to shoot me. We will appropriate your truck if necessary, said Jamel. We have to get to the Consolidated Aircraft Airport right now. The milkman nodded and stared at the gun, and then pointed to the back of his truck. He lifted the latch and pulled open the doors. Put away the gun. I'm done with my route. Getting back. The dairy's not too far from the airfield. Charlie lifted the suitcase and helped Jamel inside near the huge gray ice blocks. Then he turned the gun toward the milkman. You go through the back and get behind the wheel. The milkman furrowed his brow and his green eyes tensed. He held his hat and stepped through the back of the truck. Charlie followed him with a gun. He stood at the wheel and loosened his bow tie and collar. Then he looked back at the theater smoke again and flung his hat to the side. Sweet hour of mercy. Charlie pulled the door shut. The engine started and the empty cases and doors rattled as the truck moved along the alley's brick surface. Charlie, still holding the gun, leaned into the front. How far is the airfield? The milkman pressed his lips on the cigarette and inhaled. Then he blew the smoke out the window. About 20 minutes. The sound of fire engine sirens echoed down the street as he turned the wheel 
and the truck rolled onto a narrow boulevard. Then he checked the side mirror. I don't want to know what happened back there. Good, said Charlie. The truck continued down a long hill to an older section of town. The sunlight burst between the buildings and into the truck. As they came to a stop at an intersection, the Avigis in the blue sedan pulled away from a filling station. The milkman accelerated from the stop sign and the sedan followed. Charlie, she said, tugging on his shirt. I know, I know. Well, what's the problem, Charlie? Charlie tucked the gun in his pocket as several miles back, atop the hill, the thick black smoke spread across the afternoon sky. The mugs in that Ford behind us are responsible for what happened in that theater. All right, buddy boy, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. We do need to get to that airfield, said Jamel. His face tensed, and then he focused on the side mirror at the traffic light. They're pulling up alongside my truck. One's getting out. Charlie's brows flipped up, and he removed his gun again. Then he squatted down with Jamel behind the milkman. The Vegas spoke to the milkman from just outside the window. We are looking for the individuals who perpetrated the thermoconvection reaction inside the motion picture establishment. He has a way with words. We are from the law enforcement apparatus. Is that right? asked the milkman. Sayonara! He shifted the truck and skidded to the right, throwing Charlie and Jamel across the back. She strapped Elf over her shoulder. You may have just saved our lives. He raced up the next hill and down a side street as he called out. Law law enforcement apparatus, my necktie. They are very, very dangerous, she added. Anarchists, shouted the milkman. Charlie looked out the window. I don't see them now. Jamel motioned Charlie back into the cooler area. Charlie. Elf just picked up a transmission from that car. What? The two Avigis in New York have ordered them to the Consolidated Aircraft Airfield. They mentioned this truck. Charlie looked at the driver. Hey, listen, bud. Ken. Kenny. I sure hope you know some back roads to the airfield. Ken and Charlie both looked at the side mirror. The Ford trailed them at 200 yards. Ken threw his cigarette out the side window and quickly spun the large steering wheel. Charlie held the metal support pole. I'll get you out there. Thanks. Don't mention it, he said, holding the wheel, and he glanced into the rear mirror. You know, I was just saying to myself this morning, Kenny, you're not living dangerously enough. Jamel put her hand on his shoulder. Thank you, thank you. Everything is at stake here. Once across the city, Ken downshifted the truck, and they rumbled across a dirt road through the woods. He grinned as they sped toward the open fields ahead. Those jokers who are following you, Charlie stared into the side mirror. I keep thinking they're right behind us. You have at least ten minutes on them, then you're home free. Charlie nodded and turned to Jamel as the truck bounced. His voice shook with every bounce. I count four of them left. There's two of them in New York and one at the plant. Two outside and one at the hotel, one back in the lobby. That is correct. She closed her eyes and exhaled. Charlie caught sight of the airport runway and the gray hangar ahead. Four of them. Maybe we have a chance. He began searching for Langley to the airplanes aligned across the grass. Ken maneuvered the truck along the wooden snow fence. As they skimmed more bumps and came to a stop near the metal hangar, Charlie turned. Ken, if anybody asks you, listen, 
I don't know what you two are doing. Get going, buddy boy. Ken slid open the side door, and Charlie jumped onto the grass. Jamel handed the suitcase to him, and with Elf on his shoulder, he helped her outside. Ken saluted, shifted the truck, and slowly disappeared into a sunlit dust stream. Charlie faced the hangar. Where's Langley? I would say we have ten, maybe fifteen minutes, said Jamel as they ran across the grass. They entered the hangar together, but when they questioned the mechanics servicing the planes, no one had seen Langley. Another pilot, eating a ham and cheese sandwich at a small picnic table, shook his head. Langley ain't here. You're supposed to get us out of here, answered Charlie. We just fueled up the Vega. He said he wanted it ship shape before he flew to New York, so he took her up. The man shook hands with Charlie. Hey, Chet Givens, Charlie Russo. Is that him up there, Chet? asked Charlie at the hangar opening. The compact white plane with the red stripe flew a steady course through the afternoon skies above the field. Langley would be in the air when the Avigis arrived. We have to rush out of here as soon as he lands, said Jamel, setting down Elf. Chet joined them outside. Charlie lit a cigarette and leaned against the metal building. That's quite a plane, said Chet. Charlie inhaled the smoke and nodded as the Vega swooped through the powder blue skies. I wish I had that plane. Nobody else has it. Just design. Then again, I didn't save all those guys. What guys? asked Charlie. In the war. Langley volunteered to land his plane behind the German lines, and he brought out five guys, scorched the right side of his body, almost died from the infection. One of them was the son of somebody really important. Really? she asked. Incredible. As Jamel clutched Elf in the archives, Langley buzzed the field, tipping the wings as he looped toward the wispy clouds above. Charlie blew out the remaining smoke and snuffed out the cigarette in the dirt. What is it he always says, ha? Well, Lang has a little bit more oomph in it. He does. Hell, he's talking about flying all the way to Long Beach. He'll do it, said Charlie, as the blue sedan appeared outside the fence. Jamel turned. We are in great danger. How long until he lands, Chet? Hell, that's up to Lang. Charlie held out his watch. Maybe they'll leave. She shook her head, but as she turned, a straight, thin, green beam cut the sky near the Vega. The Ford, parked along the fence, emitted another beam from the front window, hitting Langley's plane head-on. The resulting orange flash mushroomed into a small, fiery ball in the air, and an arching stream of streaking, smoky debris rained over the field. Why, you son of a bitch! yelled Charlie. He took out his gun and ran toward the fence, but Jamel caught him twenty feet from the hangar. Charlie, don't do it! They'll kill you if they see you! The sedan paralleled the fence as more pieces of the plane hit the grass. Let's slip out of here. Obviously, they think they've killed us. Jamel, we can't let them get back to New York. It's a matter of killing them now or facing them later. She thought, and then she nodded her head. Okay. You stay back here with the archives and canisters. If I don't make it back, then head for New York alone. With Langley's animated image in his thoughts, he sprinted onto the grass before she could stop him and duck behind one of the aircraft stationed along the grass. Everyone ran to the scattered remains of Langley's plane at the far end of the field. The sedan turned and sped down the perimeter road. Holding the gun in the air, Charlie raced across the grass and toward the fence. The car stopped. One of the Avigis in a white shirt pushed open the door and aimed his thin silver weapon at Charlie. 
A green Etor beam mowed up the field as Charlie leaped onto his stomach. He rolled down the small hill to his left. Etor light splattered and grass smoked and the sand granules spewed into his eyes. Then the earth shook. The light near the fence blinded his eyes. The smell of spent gasoline permeated the air. A smoke ring rounded crater had ripped into the road and destroyed part of the fence and scorched the grass. He staggered to his feet and looked back. Jamal stood inside the hangar opening, the gun still in her hands. He quickly scrambled back to the hangar and gave Terry glances between the fence wreckage and the remains of Langley's Vega. Langley's dead. She looked punch drunk as she draped her arms around him. Even though Langley had not deserved to perish, Charlie knew as he held her and looked back at the fence, all the Avigis up here were gone. Only two survived now, both in New York City. Returning to the tower with that neon might take time, but the Avigis were awkward and unfamiliar with Earth customs in 1927, and he would no longer underestimate them. Once in a Lifetime Chapter 25 September 22nd, 1927, 6.57 a.m. Through the night, the rickety train to Jersey City, its steam whistle echoing deep into the remote countryside, wound through the Pennsylvania mountains. By morning, trees had formed a textured green tarp across the coastal plains, and the flashing sunlight between the leaves and branches caused Charlie to close his tired, itchy eyes. Just a half an hour ago, as the red sun materialized between the trees, Alf had monitored a weak transmission from the two remaining Avigis in the city. The channel went silent after repeated and failed attempts to contact their comrades upstate. Now they were waiting for Charlie and Jamel in New York City, the final battleground of a silent fight for the reigns of human history. The ubiquitous clatter of the train kept him focused on the plan he and Jamel had discussed last night in Buffalo. They would not arrive in the city by train, but would depart the station in Jersey City and take a cab to the Rumford Building. Herbie would roll the crate onto the gallery, allowing Jamel to connect the cool neon and then the archives into the transmitter. Somehow she would align it perfectly to Capella Sajion. It sounded simple but she had to complete her work while the star remained visible in the night sky. Herbie would keep the building clear of employees, and Charlie would have to prevent the last two Avigis from stopping the transmission. He flipped a nickel to a scruffy blonde-haired kid moving down the aisle with an early edition from Philadelphia. He unfolded the paper to the sports section. Despite 84 victories, Philadelphia writers was still not very kind to the Yankees. At the bottom of the American League were the hapless Red Sox, 54 and a half games out. He turned as Jamel slowly opened her eyes. Did you sleep, Charlie? More or less. He kissed her over the newspaper. We're almost in Jersey City. Dempsey is fighting Tunney tonight. Shirley Povich will be there and everyone else. He scanned the fight statistics. I love Jack. He used to ride the rails, a hobo. But Tunney's a better boxer. Jack's going to have to knock him out. She knew something about this fight because every time he had mentioned it, she started to smile. Tonight, Soldier Field, no, Soldier Field in Chicago, said Alf. Forty bucks will get you ringside. Who's going to win, Jamel? 
I don't want to ruin it for you, but it will be one of the great and most controversial fights. Controversial? How can a fight be controversial? She turned to the window. You'll see. Black and white cows huddled around rolling green meadows, merging into endless rows of corn that stood like curious onlookers to the passing train. Horses pranced along an adjacent field cut into the hillside, and a small river wandered westward below. She remained in thought. You thinking about tonight? No, about my friends on the rarer ship, and my mother and father so far ahead in the future, my brother. We lived our lives in the shadow of war. I don't know what that would be like. I was a kid during the Great War. She nodded and continued to stare outside. I miss them all, but what about you, Charlie? Do you miss your family? I left what I had. Big plans. Guess that's the way it goes for everybody, you know. You do what you have to do. She smiled and nestled against him. You regret leaving Ohio? I guess I completed the cycle, didn't I? He shook his head and peered out the window again. I accomplished what I had to do. I can go back home. You can't. That's right, love. As long as I can transmit, I will have accomplished what I have to do. 9.07 a.m. He clamped his hand around the Smith & Wesson as they bounded down the steel stairs into the busy railroad terminal. With people buzzing all around, Charlie called Herbie at home for a final check about moving the crate into the gallery. Herbie did not know that the Avigis could come to the tower. How cognizant were those beings about his and Jamel's movements? As he trudged with the suitcase toward a waiting taxi outside the train, he scooped up the New York Post and followed her inside the taxi. Tonight's fight in Chicago covered the sports pages. He grinned and looked at her. I say Tony just punches away, but Jack will let him have it. She pretended to button her lip. I have nothing to say. If we weren't being watched, I'd have Joel put 50 on Jack. He snapped his fingers. I'll have Herbie call Joel. Make it 100. I do believe you're baiting me, sir. Who, me? I can see it in your eyes. He went back to memorizing the fight stats, but he compulsively looked up and searched each street corner as they traveled through Jersey City. He then would study the occupants of the cars behind the cab. With the taxi snarled in traffic, Jamel activated L screen, but the murky magenta map showed no indication of an Avigi's presence. In human form, they could easily blend into the populace. The image of the creature's powerful glowing shell inside that storage room outside Niagara Falls would never leave his thoughts. He leaned toward the driver when they did not move. Hey, what's the problem here, bud? No tunnel into the city. Once I get this baby dumb, my life will be easier. The Holland Tunnel. Who the hell is Holland, anyway? Why didn't they name it the Coolidge Tunnel or the Walker Tunnel? Charlie peered outside again as his heart thumped. How long till we get to New York? Who the hell knows? Driver shrugged his shoulders. At first, Charlie thought an accident had held them up. He grew concerned with two men in light gabardine suits, sporting felt-brimmed hats, walked stiffly through traffic. Then El beeped softly. Charlie crumpled the paper to the floor and held the gun by his thigh and shouted, It's too hot for gabardine suits. That's them. Confirmed, said Elf, and the driver looked around. I detect energy leakage. Jamel deactivated Alf. Hey, what was that? asked the driver. Go through that new tunnel, said Charlie. That tunnel's not open till later this fall, said the dark-eyed driver in the mirror. 
They've got guns too, said Jamel, looking up from Elf. Charlie pointed his gun over the seat. Let's take a little trip through the tunnel. Do it. The driver immediately backed up and bumped the car behind. Horns sounded and people shouted. He twisted and turned the yellow checkered cab through traffic till he broke free. At the sound of gunfire, Charlie pulled Jamel onto the seat. A bullet chipped the rear window. The cab accelerated as Charlie peeked over the seat. Then, like a mouse through the maze, the driver steered his way toward the barricades and the construction workers ahead. Hey, are you two on the run? He shouted and spun the wheel. We're the good guys, bud. The two men in the gabardine suits jumped into a cream-colored Packard. Charlie's face tightened as the car followed the taxi's trail through the gridlock. When an e-tour beam blazed upward, he grabbed the driver's shoulders. I'm telling you, through the tunnel if you want to live. Oh, God, Martians, bellowed the driver. What's that beam? Don't ask. The driver smacked the shifter and sped directly through the barricade, knocking over the wooden sawhorses. Nobody noticed until one of the construction workers waved his arm, but the taxi dipped into the new tunnel's dim light. The e-tour beams ceased behind them as they cruised downward past more workers inside. The driver looked back at Charlie. We're lucky this tunnel is nearly done. No argument from me. The road dipped deep below the river. Charlie remained perched at the back window, but he did not see the Packard. They whipped by the project lights and the construction equipment and zoomed up the slope toward the New York City side. As the cab continued, he whispered to Jamel, They must have stopped the Packard. Or maybe the traffic prevented them from entering the tunnel. How did they know we were in this cab? We can't take their ignorance for granted anymore. Hey, we got problems, said the driver. Up ahead, more construction workers blocked the exit to New York City. At least a dozen workers in yellow hard hats dragged material to barricade the road. A pig-nosed little ragamuffin diagonally in front of the truck waved the cab down. The driver slowed. What the hell do you think you're doing, Mac? Tunnel not open, asked the driver. No, the tunnel ain't open. Congratulations. You're the first civilian vehicle to pass through. Something you can tell your grandchildren. From the pokey. But as he spoke, a green paddy wagon and three police cars appeared on the road ahead. A gaggle of cops poured onto the asphalt and surrounded the taxi and ripped open the doors. They dragged out Charlie, Jamel, and the driver and immediately handcuffed them before snatching everything in the car, including Elf. 10.30 a.m. The police separated them into different rooms within the station house. Charlie endured five hours of brutal, agonizing questions and was hit across the face several times, but he would not answer their inquiries concerning the canisters, Alf, and the archives. The sergeant threatened him with death and repeatedly branded him a Bolshevik. Munitions experts were brought in and they carefully examined everything. They were stumped, too. Charlie worried more about the Avigis than the pain pulsing across his right cheek. And what if the beings burst into the station and annihilated everything? The bold-faced Roman numeral clock ticked into late afternoon, and the cops still wanted answers. The clock had just chimed at 4.30 when a loud discussion ensued outside the stuffy room. As the talk grew into an intense argument, the door flew open and hit the plaster wall. Gifford, his blue paisley tie loosened and his hair disheveled, marched across the squeaky floorboards. Come on, Russo, I'm springing you. The little sergeant followed him into the room. 
I don't give a rat's ass who you say you are, Gifford. You can't take them or the confiscated materials. I'm taking them, pal. He lifted Charlie up from the oak chair. Perkins and Ellery appeared with Jamel at the doorway. When the sergeant removed his gun, Gifford produced a long-barreled handgun from his shoulder holster, thrust it into the smaller man's ribs, and swiped the sergeant's gun from his hands. You were saying, sergeant? Who, me? With weapons drawn, they exited the room, and then the precinct house. Ellery waddled ahead, down an iron staircase to a waiting car. Charlie turned to Gifford before they got inside. We have a leather case, one suitcase, and some other device, said Perkins. I'll trail you in my car. Hey, Giff, you have no idea what we've been through. Oh, we've been following your escapades, Russo. He straightened his tie and motioned them inside. Ellery got behind the wheel and lowered his hand into a bag of potato chips. Where are we going, Giff? Gifford looked at Jamel. Where are we going? The Rumford Building. My office is first, Ellery. Ellery started the car and quickly pulled from the curb. The sergeant and a dozen other policemen pushed open the front doors and stood on the precinct steps. When Ellery, one hand in the potato chip bag and the other on the wheel, nearly sideswiped the paddy wagon, Gifford leaned forward and ripped the bag from the front seat. Come on, Giff, I only had a few chips. Just drive the car, Ellery. Then he turned to Jamel and Charlie. But I want to know what the hell has been going on. Oh, a little of this and a little of that, said Charlie. Listen, my boss is very concerned about what happened up at Niagara. That plane just blew up. Reports of some strange green light. You two wouldn't know anything about that, would you? They both shook their heads. What about that car that exploded near the airfield? We lost a good friend in that plane, said Charlie. Well, I'm sorry about your friend, Russo, but there are other things I'm being grilled about. And I have no answers. Not just the plane and the car. What about the movie theater that burned to the ground? And the hotel lobby? Charlie grinned. Don't forget the electrical plant. Right, the electrical plant. That's another one. What is that death ray? A radium pistol from Barsoom? What does he mean? asked Jamel. Edgar Rice Burroughs. I'll explain later. Well, asked Gifford, unfortunate circumstances. Russo, come on. Listen, I'm under orders to help you, but I need to know about this. Mr. Gifford, you see there are people after us. Oh, I never would have guessed. Giff, said Charlie, leaning into the front seat. We need the building sealed and men placed on the observation gallery as well as the building entrances. Oh, anything else? You want a catered dinner from the Waldorf Astoria? What do you think this is, Tweedledee and Tweedledee-dum? Gifford continuously shook his head. Charlie smiled, but then his face went flat as he fell into the back seat. He shrugged his shoulders at Jamel. I'm just a bit jittery. Understandable, she said and put her head against his shoulder. Tweedledee and Tweedledee-dum? Gifford's face slowly flushed. Now listen up, all of you. There have been plots against the government, President Coolidge, and a number of other people that none of you know about. Charlie and I are the only ones involved in this. Besides Tweedledee and Tweedledee-dum. Oh, very funny. And what about that radio box? I just need to do what I have to do on that gallery, Mr. Gifford. Jamel, still not telling him the full story, 
gave Gifford a complete description of the Avigis down to the gabardine suits and the Packard. She advised the agents to shoot to kill. Who are those guys? Where did they come from? I can't tell you that, she said. We only estimate there are two of them left, but there is one thing. Well, what's that? They blow up if you shoot them. What do you think, I'm out on the roof or something? She's telling you the truth, Giff. Let me get this straight. You want my men to shoot at some tall, well-dressed hoodlums that just might blow up. Do they have dynamite strapped to them? Kaboom, said Ellery as they turned at the light. Ellery, Charlie hit his arms. They will blow up, Giff. Doesn't matter how, he's right, you know. Kaboom, like a stick of dynamite. Gifford pinched the bridge of his nose and closed his eyes. Okay, I'll clear the building, but I don't want a big shindig down there. No outside people. In 18 hours, I can be out of there, said Jamel. 18 hours? Hey, looks like we're going to miss the fight, Giff, said Ellery, pretending to pout. I wanted to hear that fight. Now I have a lot of money on that fight, Ellery, said Gifford. On Tunney, asked Charlie. No, he's a good boxer, said the distracted Gifford. But I always liked Jack ever since the Firpo fight at the polo grounds back in 23. A shot right KO'd him. You know how many guys Jack's put away? Lots. Al Capone likes Dempsey. Really? But let me tell you a little inside information. Tunney borrowed 200 grand from Bobo Hoff. He's the Capone of Philadelphia. Hey, Giff, said Ellery. Gifford gazed into the mirror. Can I have my chips back? Charlie handed Gifford the potato chip bag, and Gifford threw it back toward Ellery. Ellery yanked out a fistful of chips and stuffed them in his mouth. Gifford turned toward the back seat. War of the worlds, Russo. War of the worlds. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 26. Thursday, September 22nd, 1927, 5.43 p.m. They waited with Perkins inside Gifford's office while the arrangements were made with Herbie to clear the building around 8. Two huge white fans spun, ruffling some of the papers on Gifford's oak desk. Several times, Gifford picked up the black desk phone and called Washington. Charlie sensed a level of frustration he had not seen in Gifford. The agent had loosened his tie completely and hung his hat on the side hook near the door transom. His voice was slower, and he spoke with his teeth gritted as he repeated at least five times what he knew about Charlie and Jamel. He slammed down the phone around six o'clock, causing Ellery to stand at his side desk. Anything I can help you with, Giff? No, he said, and he spun around. Yeah, Ellery, there is. You like food, don't you? Sure. Drive over to the Waldorf. Charlie grinned and looked at Jamel, dozing with Alf on the sofa. You have them send meals for ten people over to the Rumford building. Why the royal treatment, Giff? asked Charlie. I just got off the phone with the boss's second-in-command. He thought for a second, grimaced, and shook his head. Nobody will know about this. Okay, Ellery, get the food and have it in the lobby in an hour. Can I order anything I want? Gifford sneered at him. I don't care if you get caviar from the damn Bolsheviks. I just thought maybe I'd like an ice cream sundae, said Ellery, grabbing his hat off the hook. Gifford half closed his eyes and shook his head. Then he rounded his desk and walked up to Charlie. Look, Russo, I know we have something going on here that's out of H.G. Wells. And I know you put your ass on the line for this. Not me, Jamel. Jamel is the only brave one here, he said. 
and his eyes moistened. And Don Langley, the pilot up at Niagara. Langley was a war hero, and these bastards, whoever they are, shot him down. No power like that exists here on Earth. Gifford nodded his head. They're composed of compacted energy, like Ellery said, with dynamite. There are two of them left. Well, I have men all over that tower. But if we bump them off in the tower, what happens to the tower? How big is the blast? Charlie thought back to the theater at Niagara Falls. It could bring the building down. Gifford turned to his calendar. His vacation had been scratched off and rewritten for the first week of October. And if these beings succeed, what does it mean? It means, said Jamal from the sulfur, and Gifford turned, that the planet Earth will be defeated in the future and eliminated. There will be no humanity. We'll all be dead by then, said Gifford. We can't just alert the fire companies in the precincts. The boss is entirely right. Knowledge of this will cause a mass panic. Some things are better left unsaid. Jamal crossed the office. Your boss will keep his word, I'm sure of that. The door opened and the mustache Perkins, in a white short-sleeved shirt and green-striped tie, held up the car keys. Did Allery just head to the Waldorf for food? You heard it right, Perkins, Gifford faced Charlie and Jamel. Okay, kid, as Babe Ruth would say. I have something from him, Russo, and I want you to have it. From the Babe? asked Charlie. I got the Babe's autograph. No kidding. Gifford opened the office door wider and motioned for them to leave. Thought you didn't like the Yankees, Giff. I don't, but I thought you might like this. He pulled out a printed program from Yankee Stadium. Here, Russo. Ruth's bold signature swept across the Yankee lineup. Giff, I don't know what to say. Why, well, actually, Ellery got the autograph from me. You know I hate the Yankees. To my buddy Giff, Babe Ruth. You're all right, Giff. I know that, Russo. Come on, let's start this party. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 27, Thursday, September 22, 1927, 6.23 p.m. Charlie paused behind Jamel to gaze up at the eagle above the Broadway entrance to the tower. Gifford had men stationed in the lobby and outside the entrance. Perkins, his gun drawn, walked them through the ornate archway and under the hanging lamps along the arched windows. Herbie's cantankerous voice echoed throughout the tiled lobby. Hey, welcome back, Charlie. How you been, bud? Asked Charlie, and he shook his hand. Jamel? Hello, Herbie. He smiled, but seemed pensive as they moved toward the elevator. What's the status above? Asked Perkins. Herbie stared at the gun. We're getting a few cleaning people off the 19th and 20th. Perkins nodded. Good. Herbie smiled at Charlie. Hey, Joel placed 300 on Tunny. Charlie hit his forehead with the butt of his hand. No, Herb. It was supposed to be on Jack. Oh, sorry. Charlie shook his head as Perkins brought them inside the elevator and the doors closed. Jamel squeezed his hand as they were taken upward. Each floor passed as a stream of light flashed between the closed doors. Charlie tried to figure how the Avicis would get into the building. He guessed they would enter through the ductwork below. Gifford actually had men stationed in the basement. He had his arm around Jamel's waist as the car slowed and the doors separated. A windburst hit his face as he exited the elevator. Gifford talked in an official voice on the phone near the elevator entrance. 
No, sir. I have cleared the building and dispatched additional men from the Bureau to all outside entrances, including the basement ductwork. The first time in weeks, Charlie thought they could actually get the signal out before these omnipotent beings could stop them. As he strayed toward the gallery rail, he checked his gun, knowing he had the means to fight back. The city twinkled in a mass of lights through Brooklyn and the Bronx to the east, but he no longer marveled at the city in its entirety. Like the city, his own life had become complex, and he had lost the ability to view things simply. Would his world ever be the same after tonight? Herbie appeared on the gallery a short time later, as Gifford continued on the phone. Charlie followed Herbie over to the locked storage closet. When he was in the basement, Gifford found 400 cases of Canadian Club, Charlie. Herb, I'll talk to him. No, he just shook his head and asked if I was your friend, and then he told me not to worry about it. He just kept mumbling your name. Charlie glanced at Gifford and smiled. Then Jamel stood next to Alf and walked over to him. I need an electrical connection with no surges. Herbie's forehead lines deepened. I can hook you up, but I don't know nothing about any surges. Hopefully the building was constructed with that. Gifford positioned himself between the elevator and the room with the transmitter. He slowly removed his gun, crossed his arms, and kept the gun pointed upward. Herbie fumbled with the keys for a few seconds and twisted the brass knob. Behind a vacuum cleaner and brooms, a brown canvas covered Jamel's transmitter crate. Jamel looked back at them. I need the canvas on the floor and some kind of wind barrier. Sure, said Herbie. We have plenty of office petitions out back. I need to keep the area as dust and organically sterile as possible. Herbie and Gifford moved inside and returned a few moments later with a long wall petition. Jamel directed them across the gallery to the southern railing, and within a few minutes they built walls on three sides. Jamel, with Charlie's assistance, peeled back the canvas and under her supervision they rolled the crate on a dolly around the corner toward the southern railing. When she and Alf were certain they were at the proper location, they nudged the crate into place inside the petitions. She had Charlie pry back the wooden sideboards. Charlie glanced over his shoulders to the astonished Gifford across the deck. Gifford described the process to someone on the phone, and then he just gawked at the exposed portions of the transmitter. With the packing layers torn away, the antenna and chrome dish were soon in full view. Gifford set down the phone and stepped forward. That's the thing from the apartment. Charlie drifted back to Herbie near the elevator. Herb, I can't believe you put 300 on Tunny. Well, maybe he'll win. You can take the dough. Charlie shook his head. I like Jack. Herbie looked at the agent near the door and then whispered in his ear, What the hell is that thing? Herbie, remember what you once told me about booze running? Don't ask. I won't, I won't. Hey, where'd you guys go anyway? It's a long story, bud, said Charlie, ready to light a lucky. Then he put the pack away. I had to smoke later. The smoke might wreck the transmitter. Hey, Francine ran off with Cerrone in August. The old man is furious. That's what Jamel was trying to say. August. August, that was it. That's how I would have died. Cerrone. What do you mean? Oh, it's not important now. Herbie leaned closer and put his hand aside his mouth as he whispered. Don't worry about the past, Charlie, he said, pointing at Jamel. She's stuck on you. I know, Herb, I know. The shiny transmitter, lower panels glowing green, arched upward like a giant mechanical spider on the gallery deck. Gifford, staring at the device, looked up when Charlie approached. 
They lingered for at least 15 minutes before Gifford spoke. Not from this time and place, is it, Russo? Nope. We just have to hope that she does what she has to do. Gifford fanned his gun when a loud thud from behind the storage room shook the gallery. Stay back! Everybody stay back! Jamel scrambled to her feet and hurried over to Charlie as Gifford ran forward with his gun drawn. Elf, any readings? No readings at this time. How can we be sure? asked Charlie, holding his gun. We can't. Gifford returned with Herbie, who carried a small radio, power supply, and speaker across the gallery. I tripped. Hey, this is E.B.'s private Atwater AK-36. Oh, this is very unorthodox, said Gifford. Herbie stationed the radio diagonally between the transmitter and the elevator as Gifford checked the stairwell. They fiddled with the dial. He nodded and smiled and found a radio station. Maybe the signal would strengthen in a few hours from now at fight time. Herbie returned to the supply closet with a long wire and plugs. They plugged the wire into the radio and the other end into a wall box. You've never used that radio before, right, Herbie? asked Gifford. Oh, me? Gifford shook his head and Herbie twisted the dial again. Music immediately filled the gallery. 66 on the dial, W-E-A-F. Jack will knock him out, Giff. Gifford looked at the radio and then winked at Charlie. He never should have lost the last one. He should have been in better shape and just smacked honey. My money's on the Manasseh Mauler. You mean Kid Blackie? Same thing. And I agree, he said, raising his brows to Herbie. Jamel says it will be worth listening to. What, is she a bookie now, too, along with her other talents on that thing over there? Jamel labored tediously under the transmitter's eerie green glow. She knows more than you think. Well, that's for damn sure. This whole thing scares me, Russo. I have a wife and two little girls, and I'm starting to ask myself whether they'll be here in the morning. You postponed your vacation to New Jersey. Thanks to you and your bag of tricks upstate. Don't worry, Giff. Someday you'll get a vacation. Well, it better be October 1st. Jamel crawled out from beneath the dish and cupped her hands. I'm going to need portable lights. Then she moved under again. You got him, said Herbie, shutting off the radio. I'll go below. Herbie stepped inside the elevator as Gifford shook his head. I still don't know whether it's a good idea having that fight on. Well, it would confuse the Avigis. The Avigis? Those beings from the future that you talked about? Giff, this is War of the Worlds. Gifford stared at him for a few seconds and then looked over toward the elevator. Where the hell is Ellery with that food? Probably eating it, said Charlie. He stepped toward the transmitter. Then he pulled up a small step stool and sat down. Jamel had the insulated neon canisters lined up on the floor. He leaned over. How's it going? Well, some of the canisters have lost some volume with the neon, and there has been a slight degree gain in temperature. But it will be adequate to cool the system. Charlie gave her the thumbs-up sign and then gazed skyward at the first few stars. Gifford, back at the radio, also looked up. How do you know where you're aiming at? Alf does that. We won't actually see Capella until around 8.30, past the bridges and sitting on the horizon. If I can get this operational, it will be visible most of the night. I can't believe there are really other civilizations out there. Thousands that I know of. Tonight, look for the constellation rising with the star. It's actually in its highest position directly over us before dawn. Charlie knew by now where the star would rise. At a point above the Brooklyn Bridge, and for several minutes, he fixated on the shimmering lights in the darkened waters. Then he turned and crossed the gallery. Gifford set down the phone receiver and raised his brows. 
I have 15 guys, Russo. This building has been sealed and cleared. We're ready for them. The Avigis? Exactly. What about Ellery? My stomach is talking to me and wants food. He's on his way up as we speak. Gifford checked with each agent at specific locations throughout the tower and outside. He put the phone on the hook again and studied Jamel working within the green glow under the transmitter. Then he faced Charlie. I have four men in various positions over the lobby, but there are no reports of anyone in gabardine suits or walking like they're plastered. Well, I didn't think so up at Niagara Falls. I just put another guy downstairs by the trash buckets. The whole building is sealed, Russo. There's two of them left. They have one thing in mind, stopping Jamel. When will she have that thing ready? I just don't know. Oh, nifty, real nifty. The elevated doors opened, and Gifford and Charlie, as well as the three agents, swung their weapons. When Ellery pushed her cart loaded with paper bags through the opening, Gifford threw up his hands. Where the hell did you go, Ellery? Boston? The large agent wiped his brow with a white handkerchief. You wouldn't believe the trouble I've had, Giff. How could you have trouble getting food? He asked as the phone rang. He tightened his lips and lifted the phone next to the elevated doors. Gifford. Hey, Giff. Reggie, something's going on outside. What? Outside? What are you talking about? Two guys standing by the streetlight across from the plaza. Why are you wasting time calling me? Go check it out. He stared at the receiver and then set the phone back on the hook. He'll probably be calling me the next time a mouse goes across the lobby. Gift, have some coffee cake, said Ellery as Charlie brought a cup of coffee and coffee cake on a napkin to Jamel. That's all you got from the Waldorf? I wanted a meal, Ellery. We have connections at the Waldorf. Well, they told me to beat it. Did you use the password I gave you? Sure. That's when he said he was going to beat me up, so I went to Mama Christo's. Mama Christo's? You don't like coffee cake, Giff? What I could use is a couple of shots. Gifford took the coffee cake on one of the napkins, and then Ellery handed him a cup of coffee. Charlie stood on the stool and pulled on Jamel's foot. She smiled and gave him the turnstile wave. Then she wiggled her way out. She sat up as he handed her the coffee mug. Her eyelids were droopy and, and circles had formed under her eyes, yet she still managed to smile. That tastes so good. Are you close? She raised her thin brows. I'm farther along. That neon is ready to be flooded and will be cool enough for transmission. I have to link the archives. That's the problem. It requires minute connections to transmit properly. Then I will need the magnifiers. Here, he said, placing a piece of coffee cake in her mouth. Mmm, it's good. She finished the coffee. Keep more coffee ready, love. He kissed her forehead. You're going to do this. I can feel it. If I have the time. Charlie knew what she meant. She slid back under the transmitter, and he joined Gifford and his agents. Again, Gifford shouted orders into the phone. Okay, so they're gone. Then there's not a problem, then, is there? What happened, Giff? Nothing. That's just it. The two guys in the street are gone. Gifford finished the coffee as Ellery opened another bag of food. I got croissants here, Giff. I'm not eating any more of this sweet stuff. When this is over, I'm getting myself a good steak is what I'm going to do. He checked his watch and then looked Charlie in the eye. Russo, you know this building. I want you to come down with me and talk to my guys in the lobby. We can have a smoke and then come back up. Charlie looked at Jamel onto the transmitter. Now? We'll be back in ten minutes. Charlie shrugged his shoulders. I have three trained men and Ellery up here. Ellery turned with a croissant in his mouth. Okay, let me tell Jamel. Charlie backtracked across the gallery 
He glanced into the sky and then knelt down. Jamel, I'm going to check out the lobby with Gifford. I'll be back in a few minutes. I'll be fine, Charlie. I've connected three links to the archive, so we're right where we should be. He squeezed her foot. Give me ten or fifteen minutes. Will do. Gifford's agents gathered around him near the food cart. You know the risk with these guys. Russo and I will be back in ten minutes. Gifford nodded toward the elevators. Charlie pushed the button and stepped inside the car and the doors closed. The bureau agent pinched the bridge of his nose as they started down. I've gone after some hard-boiled guys in my time, but nothing like this. And you know what? He opened his eyes. It'll never get out to the general public. Well, who would believe it? Oh, for sure. Then he wrapped Charlie's shoulder as he lit a camel. You gonna marry her, Russo? Charlie, already puffing, raised his brow. I hadn't really thought about it. Oh, come on. You've been goofy on her all the time I've known you. Yeah, well, I, I guess I would, once this thing is over. Hopefully we'll keep those palookas away from the tower. The lobby doors opened. Two of Gifford's guys came running across the lobby tiles. Giff, shots below! Are you kidding me? There were two guys outside the trash room, armed. Elkins and Dalton fired a warning shot, and the two guys fled around the building. Keep the entrances sealed. I'm going outside. Russo, back upstairs. I'm okay, Giff. Russo, I don't need any civilians getting killed. Now get in the elevator and get back to the gallery. Charlie backed across the lobby. He moved toward the elevator, and Gifford stared at him from the other side as the doors closed. Charlie pushed the rear door button, and the doors opened to the perimeter hallway. He quickly exited the building and circled back toward Broadway. Gifford spoke with one of his men about 50 feet away, but Charlie could hear him. How many men do I have around this building? 18, sir. Okay, I'm going to walk the perimeter. I want everyone on notice. If I call out a password, you are to close in and assume the two individuals have been cornered. Is that clear? No, sir. Well, why the hell not? Well, you didn't give us a password. Oh, pass well, password? Well, coffee cake, said Charlie as he approached. Damn it, Russo, you're incorrigible. I told you to get up top. What was that, sir? Nothing. Use the coffee cake password. He drew his gun and began walking around the plaza perimeter. Either you or Ellery will cause me to be committed. Don't worry, Giff, or I'll be dead before that. Oh, very funny, Russo, very funny. Better hope they aren't out there. His legs were wobbly as he held out his gun and marched alongside Gifford. He looked up the face of the tower, glowing like a portal to another world in the September night. From the street, the main building tapered upward in three sections. Then it rose even higher to the ornate Gothic pinnacle at the gallery. At 57 stories, the Rumford Tower held the claim of being the tallest building in the world. Charlie's heartbeat reverberated throughout his body as they crept forward in the shadows. He wondered if they confronted the Avigis, the ensuing implosion might bring the building down. When they reached the trash bins, Gifford waved his men outside. I don't see anything. They must have left. They're right here where you were standing, Giff. Gifford nodded. Listen, just keep the doors locked. We're walking around to the Broadway entrance, and then we're heading back upstairs. Understood, Giff. Gifford motioned Charlie forward with the gun. Strangely, Charlie thought more about the Dempsey-Tunney fight now as they rounded the building. He gazed upward again, but this time, a dark shadow, a speck, moved along the upper windows of the main building. Giff! We're almost back. The coast is clear. I could swear I just saw something on the building. On the building? Oh, come on, Russo. He scanned the upper building. I don't see anything. How could they be up there? Charlie counted window by window, but nothing moved. I must be seeing things. Come on, we're heading back up top. 
Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 28. Thursday, September 22nd, 1927, 9.56 p.m. Under a brilliant spread of stars, Charlie had a pervasive fear that the darkness might allot the two remaining Aviji some strategic advantage. The shadows he had seen ascending the main building gave him the heebie-jeebies. He placed his shoulder against the elevator wall. Crowd noises from Chicago came over the wall speakers. As the commentators from ringside spoke about the upcoming bout, an increasingly nervous Gifford talked on the building phone. Hey, that's Graham Nachnamy announcing the fight, said Charlie. He did the Lindbergh stuff. See the guy that nailed you with Jamel? Asked Herbie. No, that was on film, bud. Across the deck, five pole lights with metal shades surrounded the transmitter. Within a red-orange iridescence, Jamel, the magnifiers now over her eyes, fed the neon directly into the unit. Three empty coffee cups were stacked on a saucer near her arm. Herbie hit Charlie on the shoulder. Twenty bucks, says Jack, puts him away before the fifth. Never mind your bets, Herbie. You got me rooting for Tunny because of the money I wanted on Jack. Herbie made a dumb expression with his teeth as Gifford, on the phone again, now checked with his people around the building. He seemed uncharacteristically tense and hung up as the fight began. They all leaned toward the radio. Dempsey came out quickly and smacked Tunney with two quick lefts to the jaw. Herbie pretended to box. Here we go! Tunney retaliated with a burst of punching also and connected with a right to Jack's chin. In this rough-and-tumble round, and to Charlie's consternation, Jack ended up on the ropes. At the end of the round, the former champion requested smelling salts. Charlie, disgusted, wanted a cigarette. I don't believe it. Smelling salts? That's not good. Tony can punch, Russo, said Gifford, his gun still pointed upward from his folded arms. Charlie waved him off and glanced at Jamel under the bright lights. She used other tools above the transmitter, the magnifiers still over her eyes. Hey, I never heard of this referee, Dave Barry, said Hiraby. I'm telling you, Capone put him in there, said Gifford from the wall. How do you know that, Giff? asked Charlie. A little birdie told me. Charlie shrugged his shoulders as the second round began, but he perked up once Dempsey came back with a vicious left hook to Tunney's mouth. He cheered later in the round when Jack took Tunney to the ropes. As the round ended, Tunney replied with a right to the jaw, and then Jack found himself on the ropes. Charlie shook his head and crossed the gallery. Jamel had removed the magnifiers and sipped on more coffee. Like a patient in surgery, the belly of the transmitter opened up with a heightened orange luminescence. She smiled, wiping her forehead as he approached. You need more coffee? I don't think I can take more coffee, love. The neon is inside and is cooling everything down. But the toughest part is ahead. Alf and I have to bring this all together. The archives have to go out on pulse signals, tens of thousands of them. We have to be sure that the Sageons get the signal. It's a numbers game, I guess. The more pulses, the more chances that they can receive the archives. Life is a matter of numbers, Jamel. I get this sinking feeling, like the Avijis are sitting back and watching, waiting to see what you're doing, just like they did at Niagara. Well, that could be possible. I have confidence in Mr. Gifford and his men. She slid back under the transmitter and placed the magnifiers over her eyes. They do have the building sealed. Herbie ran around the corner. Charlie, he's bleeding. Who's bleeding? He asked, stepping toward Herbie. Jack, Jack's bleeding. Come on. 
Charlie raced back to the Atwater and, and Gifford grimaced as he took a step forward. He came out slow, Russo. He missed one to Tunney's head, but Tunney kept stinging him with those uppercuts. Right to the face, he's bleeding out the nose and mouth. I guess I underestimated Tunney. Gifford walked over to Perkins near the elevator. Make sure the guys are in place on the 20th and the 39th. Where's Ellery? On the 20th. Munching on something, no doubt. Gifford winced and then pointed his finger. Okay, then I want a complete check-in. Call me on the building phone. Perkins moved to the elevator. Rank has its privileges, said Charlie. Gifford smiled and faced the radio. The round started with Dempsey running out and swinging like a madman. A wild left almost knocked over Tunney. A left, a right, said Charlie, repeating the announcer's descriptions. Go, Jack! Dempsey's short-lived barrage must have angered Tunney. Tunney had an open cut over his eye. Charlie peered around the corner. Jamel had crawled underneath the dish again, her legs poking through the glow across the gallery floor. There he goes! Charlie looked back at the radio. Jack stunned Tunney with a powerful uppercut to the jaw, bearing down to the point where Barry, the referee, warned him against hitting Tunney behind the neck. Tunney fought back with lefts and rights, and then the phone rang. Gifford walked to the phone while looking back at the radio. He answered abruptly. Gifford. What? Oh, come on, Perkins. You told me you had the damn place sealed. Now what? asked Charlie. The powerful glowing of Aegis again consumed Charlie's thoughts. He scurried over to Gifford, speaking on the phone. Then get them up here right now. This makes no sense. Find out if the phone is working down there. Put everyone on alert. Gifford slammed down the receiver. What happened? Ellery can't find the other guys on the 20th. And he said... Gifford took two steps toward the transmitter and put his hands on his hips. How much longer for her to finish? I don't know. What did Ellery say? Well, you're not going to believe this, but he said he saw two men climbing outside the building along the ledge. Kids lost his mind. Charlie snapped his fingers and stepped closer to Gifford. I knew it. I told you I saw something up there. Climbing the building, Russo? You're all wet on that one. Gifford stared at Jamel and the transmitter. Then he ordered two additional armed agents over next to her. After walking briskly back across the gallery, he commandeered Herbie, who knew the building well, to accompany him below. Charlie wanted to join them, but Gifford held him back. Wish me luck, Russo. Giff, come on, let me go with you. Not this time. You stay up here with Jamel and my guys. Gifford spun the chamber of his weapon, and the elevated doors opened. After checking on the two agents, and Jamel under the transmitter, Charlie inched back to the stairwell and opened the door slowly. He rushed inside and galloped down the stairs. Herbie must have finagled something with the sound because the ubiquitous Graham McNamee announced the fight as he passed each floor. Near the 39th floor, he thought he heard noises, and he held out his gun. Going inside the 35th might be risky. He stepped on his tiptoes down the stairs. Seconds later... He observed an unmistakable fresh blood trail trickling down over the concrete stairs. More blood on the brass door handle convinced him the Avigis were inside the tower. Giff! Giff! His voice echoed down the concrete stairwell as he centered the gun on the blood-smeared door. One of the Avigis of both could be on this very floor. His heart pounded as he started down the stairs again and stepped onto the bloody shoe prints on the concrete. The Avigis had wrapped one of the agents like a pipe cleaner, his body mushy and contorted around the railing. His arms and legs dangled in death. 
The last few drops of blood dripped from his fingers down the precipice. Charlie grew queasy and covered his mouth as he descended past the dead man. When he reached E.B.'s office door, he precariously opened the hallway door. Then he headed down the corridor to the old man's office. Somehow he had to alert Gifford and stop the Savigis from reaching the transmitter. He grasped the office door handle and pulled it open. Graham McNamee and the wild crowd noise blasted out of the dimly lit office ceiling speakers. He knocked over a few things near Miss Markheim's desk and gently picked up the phone. Gifford? He heard a click and then froze when he recognized the low of Aegis' drawl. Everyone is dead, Russo. Tell me the purpose of the activity at the summit of this structure. If you do, I will not kill you. Charlie dropped the phone and retreated into E.B.'s office. The pervasive cherry tobacco reminded him of the old man. Outside, the phone swayed like a pendulum, scraping over the veneer of Miss Markheim's desk as the creature's garbled voice sounded inside the earpiece. Charlie backed up to the marble fireplace at the end of the long mahogany table. With the gun in his right hand, he confiscated a heavy fireplace poker. He breathed steadily as the sweat rolled off his forehead and onto the mahogany. The silver city lights heightened the sublime atmosphere through the Venetian blinds as shadows forged the dark stripes across the walls and rug. Whether or not he found Gifford or Herbie, Charlie knew he had to return to the gallery before the Abegis attacked. Jack seemed to be gaining on Tunney. Charlie edged his way along the wall toward the door, but he did not see the Abegis. He gripped the poker just as he heard Tunney had been knocked to the canvas. But McNamee said something about Tunney being on the mat too long and Dempsey not returning across the ring. Charlie raised his brows but focused his thoughts on the light outside the executive offices. At that moment, the glowing translucent being in its raw form stepped through the doorway. Unlike the security guard at Niagara, he did not assume human appearance and wore a corrugated blue armor suit. His illuminated green disc eyes were cut with a hardened shell that glowed with tremendous surging blue energy. Static electricity cracked along his shell. The floor shook as the being passed Miss Markheim's desk and then retraced Charlie's route toward the fireplace. He grasped a straight silver tube in his hand. But Charlie had him in the gun sight and aimed at his head. He prepared himself for the implosion, but the gun jammed. He pulled the trigger again. A second time it failed. In disbelief, he held the poker, carefully transferring it to his right hand. The Avegis plodded into the old man's office. Waiting would get him killed. He lowered his head and crawled quietly onto the rug under the table. The creature's armor-clad legs and boots creaked distinctly as he paced around the table. Charlie needed to position himself toward Miss Markheim's office and would have to use the poker. The Avegis walked just inches away from the window side of the table. Charlie still smelled the traces of the old man's stale tobacco as he slid softly on his hands and knees. If this Avegis survived, besides killing Jamel, the future would be lost. Charlie's next move on this September evening in 1927 would be the most important thing he would ever do, and would determine humanity's ultimate destiny. He turned on the rug, just below the table, and faced the Avegis, and then backed on his buttocks across the floor. The creature looked out the window over the city. How could he penetrate this creature's armor? 
whether jabbing with the poker or firing the gun, he would have to accurately hit the exposed area with sufficient force to trigger the implosion, and at the same time, not get himself killed. If he missed, he would be ripped apart by an etor beam. He slowly stood, grasped the poker, and prepared for the throw of his life. Avegis! The Avegis turned and started to raise his weapon. Like one of the Yankees, instantly interpreting the path of an oncoming curveball, Charlie had already cocked his arm. See you at the next stop! Aiming for a brief second at the creature's head, he released the poker. The ensuing blast hurled him past Miss Markheim's desk and slammed his body against the elevator, knocking the wind out of him. He spread out his arms, sprawled like one of the fighters across the canvas. In the darkness, a charred presence hung in the air, dampened by a stiff, salty wind into the wide, open, craggy office cave. The Avegis implosion had obliterated the old man's office and boardroom. From the edge of the wool rug, the shadow buildings bordering the ocean on the lower tip of the island loomed strong enough to give him vertigo. Once on his knees, he rolled back to the rear wall and quickly entered the stairwell. He did not care about the fight anymore. His only thoughts concerned the one of Aegis still lurking somewhere within the tower. Jamel stood near the railing when he burst onto the deck. The frantic agents surrounded him immediately. Perkins wanted to know about Gifford. Charlie assured him as he passed that he had not seen Gifford. Charlie! Jamel, the magnifiers in hand, ran over to him. I have detected material from the Fiji's implosion, said Alf. You're right on the money, Alf. She held his shoulders. My God, Charlie, are you all right? Your shirt is singed. I'm all right. I'm more worried about Gifford, Ellery, and Herbie. They were nowhere near where that thing blew up. There's still one of them left. Jamel, are you close to transmitting? I'm ready to transmit. After all this time, said Charlie, hugging her, what you've accomplished is a miracle. It'll be a miracle once it's left Earth and safely on its way to Sajian. Charlie stepped back as she flipped down the magnifiers, and he helped her under again. On the radio, he heard the judges declaring Tunney the winner. Dempsey had come out swinging wildly in the last round, unable to salvage the time Tunney was down on the mat. Well, that's damned unfair, said Charlie. She heard him and looked up. What, the fight? Yeah, Tunney was on the canvas too long, and that ring was 20 foot instead of 16 foot. You got your money, love. Nah, I don't care about the dough. I wanted Jack to win. It just doesn't seem fair. Whoever said things were fair? Charlie nodded as Alf rattled off numbers and equations. They activated a small humming motor as the wide dish began to move. He looked across the river toward the yellow star, wondering about the civilizations so far away. The transmitter slowly moved into alignment. Right ascension, 5 hours, 16 minutes. Declination, 45 degrees, 59 minutes. 52.768. The angle is completed. System charge your command, Jamel. She gazed up at Charlie, took off the magnifiers, and gave him a wide smile. Then she proudly turned back to Elf. Charge up, Elf. Charge commencing. Almost immediately, a deep hum resonated across the gallery floor. The silver dish heightened in color to the same neon orange glow. A fluctuating needle-sized blue beam emerged from the dish and emigrated like mercury going up a thermometer. 
toward the stars. Is that the archives, Jamel? Oh no, that's just the alignment beam. Charlie glanced toward the agents congregated near the elevator, and he wondered what was happening below. The one of Aegis consumed his thoughts. The thin beam was replaced by an emerging orange-red bubble, soon resembling a two-sided bullet maybe six to eight feet long. The beam pushed the bubble upward as a deeper red mesh shield surrounded it. Now what are we looking at? She stood up and put her arm firmly around him. Oh, merely the combined archives of the planets Sagian and Earth. A whooshing sound shook the gallery, and the bullet-light projection shot into the night sky, its trail forming a red streak toward Capella, 42 light-years away. Jamel told him it moved at a greater speed than light, with enhanced capacity, allowing it to arrive long before the 42 years, which would be the year 1969. Charlie, still looking skyward, heard some commotion at the elevator. Gifford, bleeding from the shoulder and head, appeared incoherent as he fell onto the gallery floor. It's coming! It's coming! Charlie sprinted across the gallery. Gifford, on his back, had fresh blood in his right nostril and his swollen right eye distorted his face. Are you all right, Gif? He pushed out the words. Do I look like I'm all right, Russo? Charlie took Perkins's handkerchief and wiped the blood off the agent's forehead. Gifford winced and Charlie retracted the handkerchief. That bastard... Crushed the heads of my men like watermelons. Then he used that ray gun of his. They're all dead. Every one of them. What about Herbie and Ellery? Trapped. On the 22nd. Charlie and the agents helped him sit up. The 22nd? Asked Charlie, looking over his shoulders at the elevator. There's nothing you can do, Russo. That thing will kill you just like it killed my men. It must be stopped. Charlie, you can't go down there, shouted Jamel. Charlie grabbed the weakened Giffen's gun and ran for the elevator. She turned for a moment to track the red shielded beam pulsing into the dark sky. Charlie leaped into the elevator. Jamel, her blue eyes in dogged fear, sprinted toward him, but the doors closed. He hit the button for the 20th floor and the car started down the shaft. Working his way up from the 20th made sense. He closed his eyes as the car hummed, but when it did not slow, he reached for the controls. The car moved downward as he jabbed the button. At the 10th floor, the car decelerated and finally stopped at the street level. The doors opened to the ornate tiled main lobby, and three gun-toting uniformed New York City police officers charged him. They snatched Gifford's gun and dragged him to the wall and frisked him. Then they spun him around, and a fat-faced, unshaven, huge cop with booze on his breath thrust his clammy hand against Charlie's throat. What the hell happened up there, sweetheart? Something blew out the side of the building. You bombed this building, didn't you? No, sir. You know what I'm going to do with you, little man? They handcuffed his wrist and pushed him out the Broadway entrance. A considerable crowd had gathered on the street. Dazed, he looked up at the dimly lit towers. The last of Aegis remained somewhere up there, and Jamel only had the minimal protection of the remaining agents on the gallery. He never should have left her up there alone. A uniformed, smart-mouthed cop leaped out of the paddy wagon. He stormed across the plaza and grabbed Charlie's shirt. You listen, you son of a bitch! I want to know what the hell you were doing up there! I used to work here. I was going up top for a look-see. You're lying! The other cop had Charlie's wallet. Charles Russo! Russo! Charles Russo! The Bronx! Charlie said nothing now as they bombarded him with more questions and dragged him across the plaza. 
He looked upward toward the gallery, but could not see the transmitter's red shielded light from this angle. Maybe she had finished the transmission, or worse, perhaps the Avigis had reached the gallery. They sat him on a park bench under a street lamp, and at least a dozen officers surrounded him. The cop from the paddy wagon threatened to kill him, but he remained transfixed on the top of the tower. Just past midnight, a brilliant green flash exploded high above the offices, followed by crackling thunder seconds later. The flash briefly lit the night sky. Debris soon rained down onto the concrete. Everyone scattered, but they kept him on the bench. Still cuffed, he leaped to his feet. No! Jamel! Jamel! Hey, who the hell is Jamel? asked the cop. Oh, God, no, Jamel, Jamel, bring me up to the gallery. I'll talk. I'll tell you anything. The cop looked at his partner and some of the other cops. Then he moved right up to Charlie's face. The only place you're going is the can, and then probably to the chair. Get him out of here. He's all done. Give you any trouble? Kill him. Once in a Lifetime, Epilogue, Friday, September 30th, 1927. Being stuck in a cracked, mortared brick 10 by 12 jail cell somewhere in New Jersey became the only consistent thing in his life. After spending the day in that urine-laden cell, he was mysteriously released on the morning of the 23rd and accompanied to his apartment by a number of bureau agents. They told him not to ask any questions, and they refused to talk about Gifford Jamel or the events at the tower. They surrounded the apartment and said they would keep him under constant surveillance. He placed the needle on the spinning Ira Berrigan record that he and Jamel had danced to atop the tower. Then he would wind the Victrola and listen again and again. He threw the empty scotch glass against the plaster and cried into his hands. The window breezes brushed against his tears. He stood and took two more shirts off the closet hangers and folded them into his open suitcase. With no job and certain she had died, he saw no reason to remain in the city. After talking with the bureau agents, he opted to return to Jefferson Falls and the slower-paced life he had until only recently despised. He looked into the evening edition on the coffee table. The Yanks had an inconsequential game today against the Senators, but for the Babe, Having reached his 1921 mark of 59 home runs, this afternoon's contest became a game of possibilities. He reached for the phone and waited for the operator. He spoke clearly. Operator, I need the Bureau of Investigation office in Manhattan. She connected the line and it rang a few seconds later. Bureau of Investigation, Stan Randall. Randall, it's Charlie Russo. Russo, how are you doing? On top of the world, bud. Listen... Before I leave for Ohio, I want to go to the game. That's not a problem. You have to tell me what happened up there in the tower. I have my orders. From Washington? I can't comment on that. What about Gifford? As I told you, this entire affair is classified. Charlie leaned back on the sofa and closed his eyes. I love that woman, Randall. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right. He clicked the line and asked the operator to connect him to Joel's number. Finkelsteins. Joel, this is Charlie. Hey, Charlie. I'm getting your money from the fight. You keep it, bud. You feeling okay? Yeah, I'm okay. He picked up the paper. Shirley Povich was singing Tunney's praises. He said Jack joined the list of former champs who tried to regain his title. 
Ah, he was robbed. I don't buy this baloney about going back to the other corner. Well, I'm not reading Povich anymore. He said Jack wasn't a worthy challenger. Well, he'll come back. Sometimes there's no coming back, Joel. He tossed the paper on the floor. Look, I'm going out to the stadium. They're playing the Senators. Can you get time off? Nah, I'm stuck in here all day with the old man. I wanted to see that game. What if the babe does it? Charlie opened his eyes. The babe. I forgot about all that. Are you nuts? How can you forget about the babe? He's at 59. I'll let you know what happens, Joel. He hung up the phone and grabbed his coat and touring hat. For a second, he stared at the Behringer record on the Victrola's green felt turntable. Then he opened the door and stepped outside. Less than two miles from the stadium, he could easily return to his apartment and finish packing. He glanced at the tower and the rest of the city. The New York Yankees remained the only consistent thing in his life. Alone on the third baseline, Charlie stared across the shadows traced within the low autumn light across the green grass. All during the game, he failed to feel the raw excitement of the bats cracking, the cheering crowd, and the smell of the park. The Babe, although with two hits in this game, would likely remain at 59 home runs, the same as 1921. Today, Charlie would have married Francine Rumford and stepped into his preordained life of position and comfort. But as he studied each passing cloud across the blue sky over center field, he no longer believed in the inevitability of anything. He stared at his ticket stub as he stood, then he threw it onto the cement. In the eighth inning, with the score tied, he decided to leave. He wandered disheartened toward the aisle. He lit a lucky and shook the match and then descended down the ramp. Under these very grandstand girders, he had first seen Jamel walking in her blue frock. Now the run had ended and he wandered alone toward the turnstile. In the blaze of September sunlight, Jamel emerged from the turnstile. She wore a soft white sweater and solid maroon skirt. Gifford and Herbie were just behind her, trailed by Ellery eating a long hot dog. Charlie chucked the cigarette. They both ran forward. Jasmine filled the air, and he lifted her upward as he had during the parade. How? How? An agent took my gun and shot the Avigis climbing over the gallery rail. Charlie turned toward Gifford. Giff? Don't get all mushy, Russo. I didn't do it. I lost Elf and the transmitter in the implosion. But the message went through. Gifford mumbled something about Ellery and mustard on his face as Charlie set Jamel down and turned. Ellery fired the shot, said Gifford in a low voice. What was that, Giff? I said Ellery fired the shot. Kaboom, said Ellery, wiping the mustard from his chin. You all right, Herb? Herbie gave him two thumbs up. About the cops and the press. Nobody knows anything. We called it an internal structural flaw in the Rumford Tower. E.B. signed off on it. My boss considers the matter closed. And me? I'm finally going to the shore with my family. But the signal. The signals are safely on their way to Sajun, said Jamel. He held her extended hands. I think thought you were dead. They wouldn't let me contact you. I'm sorry, but what inning is it? No, it's the eighth. Hurry up. Come on. She took his hand and they ran to the top of the ramp. The babe's going to do it, isn't he? Yes, he is. You did it. You told me the future. That's not the only thing I'm going to tell you, Mr. Russo. She kissed him and they turned in unison toward the field as Ruth emerged from the Yankee dugout. In the past few minutes, the world became alive again. At the plate, Mark Koenig slammed the ball, and the crowd rose as he rounded the bases, making it safely to third. 
With a tied score, Koenig represented the winning run, and the man who had reached his own incredible home run record now stepped to the plate to face Tom Zachary. The babe seemed ready. Zachary hurled a strike down the middle. Charlie looked down to the cement as the crowd noise rose to an unusual level. Zachary sat and threw the next pitch higher for a ball. Charlie held his arm tightly around Jamel and tilted his head upward, this time wondering if it really would happen. She directed him to the plate. Zachary, in his windup, released the ball into the autumn air. The stadium now shifted into a slow-motion, timeless dimension, minus the sound and sanity, as if some grand and eternal celestial convergence had docked into its proper alignment. Ruth swung swiftly and mightily. The ball cracked against the bat and went sailing skyward, hugging the line toward the right field bleachers. Zachary argued with the umpire, but Charlie knew it was out of the park from the second it hit the bat, and the crowd knew it too. They went out of control. People who never screamed were screaming. Everyone jumped and waved their arms. Confetti flickered throughout the stadium. The babe trotted like a twinkle-toed elephant around the diamond, as if he were king of the world. And he was. He lifted her into the air. He did it! He did it, Jamel! He did it! Players poured from the dugout, but it was Lou Gehrig meeting the babe at home plate that caught Charlie's eye. Ruth crossed the plate, and it was all over. What do you think, love? I've never seen anything like this in my whole life. What else is there? Tell me, what else is there? She tugged on his ear and shouted within the stadium madness. The future, Charlie Russo, and it's all yours. The final scene of the book with Ruth belting number 60 is without a doubt Fitton's dream to go back in time and hear the ball connect to the wood and the big ox, the babe, trot around the bases. Charlie scores pretty big too with Jamel not having died in the future ahead of him. My next endeavor will be to podcast and comment on my short stories and novellas from the collection called Compilation. Thanks for hanging out through Once of a Lifetime. This is Robert P. Fitton and I will be back next time. In the words of Langley, September 30th, the next to last day of the season, and needing just one more home run, he faced Tom Zachary of the Washington Senators. The first Zachary offering was a fast one which sailed over for a call strike. The next was high. The babe took a vicious swing at the third pitch ball, and the bat connected with a crash that was audible in all parts of the stand. While the crowd cheered and the Yankee players roared their greeting, the babe made his triumphant, almost regal tour of the paths. And when he embedded his spikes in the rubber disc to officially Homer 60, hats were tossed in the air, papers were torn up and tossed liberally, and the spirit of celebration permeated the place. Sixty, count him, sixty, Ruth shouted in the locker room. Let's see some other son of a bitch match that. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.